Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to episode four of Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast, which is, as always, generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Now, in this episode, we'll be delving into the world of nonfiction books and joined albeit remotely, sigh, by biographer, critic and former judge of the prize, Francis Wilson, along with journalist and biographer Jasper Rees to talk about the things that don't make it into the final edit. Those little nuggets of information which you might uncover from the cutting room floor, so to speak. Jasper Rees is an arts journalist and author who has written for many publications, including the Daily Telegraph, the Independent, Sunday Times. He is one of several arts journalists who, in 2009, co-founded theartsdesk.com. His previous books include I Found My Horn and Bread of Heaven, both a bridge for Radio 4's Book of the Week and biographies of Arsene Wenger and Florence Foster Jenkins. And of course, he is best known for Let's Do It, the authorised biography of Victoria Wood. Francis wrote Guilty Thing, A Life of Thomas de Quincey, which was long listed for the Bailey Gifford Prize in 2016 and was named Book of the Year in The Guardian, The TLS, The Spectator, and The Telegraph. Her other works include How to Survive the Titanic or The Sinking of J. Bruce Ismay. And more recently, she has been working on a biography focusing on the tempestuous life of D.H. Lawrence. Jasper, Francis, welcome. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And um, let's start by uh, just trying to deal with something really quite simple the decision to write a biography on a particular subject. Do you have a kind of notebook of people that you really want to delve into their lives? How do you decide? Jasper, how did you decide to write about Victoria Wood? Well, it, was, it wasn't really my decision. I mean, I'd, I was invited by Victoria's estate, uh, having interviewed her quite a few times in her lifetime. Uh, and um, this was not long after she died, actually. It took quite a long time to get to the start line before I started writing. But um, uh, I, I was, uh, I, I won't say I was the obvious candidate, but I was, I was clearly someone who uh, had a, uh, a lot of material to draw on from, uh, from previous interviews. And it was really, for me, just a question of how much of their arm I could bite off to do it. So uh, it, was, it was no decision at all, really. What about you, Francis? I mean, that the, there have been um, other biographies of Thomas de Quincey. What, what did you think when you decided on on him, or, or do you have a list of lots of others that you would you wanted to to delve into? Well, I think I'll talk more about my uh, biography of D. H. Lawrence because that's coming out in a couple of weeks, and I think that's sort of that um, that's much more kind of contentious, if you like, and much more applicable to this whole area. Yes, there are many biographies of D. H. Lawrence. His life has been covered to death. We know everything that he did on every day of his life. Every single letter has been edited, but yet. I felt, and this is what I always feel with my the subjects that I um, write lives of, um, if I feel that the life just falls flat on the page in the previous biographies, and I want to kind of, I want to put some oxygen into it, I, I want to do, I, I will do what I call a reinterpretation. I mean, I don't do, I don't return to old documents. I don't try and ferret out new documents. I just try and get some more life into, <laughs> into what already exists. 
I, I, I'm, intri- I'm intrigued that you want to talk about the one that's coming up, but let's let's stick with 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 De Quincey just for a moment because I I, d- I do think that there is something I was reading reading through about both these subjects, and and it seems to me that surprising though it may be to people listening. Thomas de Quincey and Victoria Wood do have something in common, making great art out of living, which is what both of them did. You know, Victoria Wood clearly wrote about uh, not just her own life, but about her perception of being from the north of England and so on. And, and de Quincey has made his his name from autobiographical confessional work. And, and, and I wonder about the, the difficulty of dealing with that when you have this authentic voice in both your subjects, what you bring to it as a biographer. Jasper. Well, permit, permit me a, just a mild chuckle at the, uh, or rather imagining Victoria chuckling at the idea of being mentioned in the same sentence as Thomas de Quincey. <laughs> I, but, know. Uh, I know, I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. D.H. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, Lawrence, I think she'd probably feel a bit more comfortable uh, with, with that or, or find it less comical. But um, uh, with Victoria, uh, yeah, she, she, the, the thing that I discovered about her more when I was researching her biography was that she did write very autobiographically. I mean, I had a sense of it, um, you know, knowing her work well, but but the extent to which she wrote, uh, she drew on her own life was absolutely uh, intriguing to me when, when uh, um, you know, even in the sort of moments of, of high comedy, uh, she's clearly... As I as I uh, researched it more and more, I came across letters in which she's she's referring to events that happened uh, in her childhood or in um, uh, her time at university, which which kind of migrates more or less kind of verbatim into sketches and dramas that she wrote. And and you know I, we we'll probably talk about this more uh, later on. But she, the thing that she kept on coming back to more and more and more was her relationship with her mother. That was the the. Um, the sort of thing that uh, was a subject that she could never quite leave alone. So, uh, so I, in answer to your original question, was was there? I, I can't remember your original word, but what were the problems? I didn't find it uh, a problem um, trying to kind of resolve the distance between Victoria, the performer, and Victoria, the um, Victoria, the private person. The, the I just found it deeply, deeply fascinating and enriching to to try and marry those two halves. Francis, is it an easier? Um, do, does a, a subject for biography um, become easier if there is all this autobiographical material around? I mean, both in the case of Thomas yes. de Quincey and and D. H. Lawrence. Yes, absolutely, it does. I mean, what what interests me in biography is autobiography. I always gravitate towards subjects who've already written about themselves, and so I try to kind of get inside how they've structured their life in order to see what they've done, to uh, what story they tell, so that I can get the kind of so I can get inside the shape of their thinking the fantasy of uh, the fantasy of their own existence if you like and so what I mean what really interested me about Thomas de Quincey was the story he told uh, of his own addiction in Confessions of an English Opium Eater I mean he even turned his addiction into an art he turned his dreams into an art he turned murder into an art in his kind of fascination with murder so he turned all the tawdry details of his unconscious life and his weak body into an art form and that was that was very kind of exciting for me to work with 
Do, do, do both of you think that there is a continuing appetite for uh, the, the lives of people in, 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 in just in general terms, that publishers are really interested in biography? Or, or is, there, is there a sense that they want not necessarily uh, new biographies about people who are familiar, but what, what they might also be looking for is, is kind of underrepresented voices. And when you look at someone like Victoria Wood, national treasure status, somebody who everyone in the country will have heard of, was, was that the pull for publishers, do you think? I'm just thinking about a kind of general notion of what, what attracts publishers to biography, or, or is it some aspect of that person's life that, is, that, that has not been discovered, the un, unrepresented part of that person's life? Well, to put it very crudely, I think that when she died, she had not written her own biography, uh, her own autobiography. Uh, she had toyed with the idea. Um, there were there were a lot of, um, you know, people offering, the publishers were, had been offering uh, sort of increasingly vast sums of money to her for, you know, more than a decade uh, to do a book. So there was a gap in the market. Um, and, and when she died, clearly she, you know, someone needed to write her biography. But, um, as to, I mean, Victoria invented a profession. Um, she was she was the first woman to go on stage, and tell jokes about what it's like to be a woman. I'm very wary of the fact that I here I am as her male biographer, um, sort of mansplaining this um, uh, this concept. But but that is that is what happens. That that there had been women who had gone on in character. Beforehand, and the other thing she did was that it was incredibly rare in the 1980s for um, anyone to go on stage and do a whole evening of comedy. It just didn't really happen then very much. So, so she was completely new, um, and so the story of how uh, she invented herself as a performer, and she obviously uh, covered so many uh, different disciplines. You know, she was a sketch writer, she was a songwriter. Um, she she wrote dramas, she produced, she directed, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, there was just, she's just a one-woman entertainment industry. Francis, this this idea of, of publishers' interest in particular subjects, I mean, how hard is it for you to persuade publishers that, you know, Thomas Thomas De Quincey's life is uh, is interesting to a broad range of, of readers and, and the fact that there there are, there and there is lots of material on D.H. Lawrence, that, that they are interested in that too? I mean, obviously, a lot of it rests on your own reputation as a biographer, but, but just generally speaking, is there an appetite for this, do you think? No, it's tough. I I think by, I think publishers prefer to uh, publish biographies of uh, people who have already been very well covered, like Hitler, a new life of Hitler, new life of Napoleon, something. That's what they that's what they feel is safe. Um, with Thomas de Quincey, no, they weren't they weren't queuing up. There were for me. There wasn't an auction for me. I, mean, I, had to. I think everyone felt they could live without this book, and so you have to. I had to kind of make quite a make a case for um, Thomas de Quincey being a person who had something of, of importance to say to us. Now he was someone who was relevant and more relevant than we might think, and. He wasn't a minor character, certainly not a minor character in his own life. But anyway, what's wrong with minor characters? And so, and so you have to, I felt I had to kind of push 
um, Thomas de Quincey's kind of um, the way the way which Thomas de Quincey has embedded himself in our culture to the kind of forefront of um, of the book in a way that I wouldn't necessarily want to do, you know, if I wasn't trying to kind of please a publisher. And so I had to I had to impress on the publisher that Thomas de Quincey had invented the recovery memoir that he'd invented the addiction memoir, that he'd invented our, um, he'd invented us in as much as he invented our obsession with murder and our glorification of murder and the whole Patricia Highsmith culture of getting inside the mind of the psychopath, that we're all, we are as much indebted to Thomas de Quincey as we are to kind of Freud and Darwin. I mean, it's a, a be overstating it but that's what I said and, and with, your pitch had to be strong that was my pitch. <laughs> and with D.H. Lawrence of course I mean nobody wants to touch D.H. Lawrence because he's seen as absolutely um he's seen as absolutely toxic and so it was a hard you know it was a hard call to get them to want to think about D.H. Lawrence in a new way and see that D.H. and have me suggest that D.H. Lawrence might have something relevant to still say to us well, let's talk about the, the the process of of not just the writing but the editing. You know, the, the, this this um, particular episode is really looking at the cutting room floor, and and clearly, when there's an awful lot of material, selection has to be made, and quite careful selection. Jasper, your book is a kind of whopping six hundred pages. I mean, I I wonder whether you know it's interesting that you say that that Victoria Wood would have written a very different kind of uh, autobiography to the biography of her life, an authorized biography of of her life that you've written. I mean, how hard was it for you to make those decisions about this is essential? I can't I can't not put this in. Um, it is a whopping book. I cannot. Uh, you know, deny that. It, it's, it whops to the length of 500 pages and, and then there are a lot of notes afterwards. Um, but, uh, you know, and people have said, oh, wow, it's very, it's very meticulous, it's very detailed. And there has been a small but uh, vocal minority on the kind of review sites saying um, it's too detailed. It's, some people have said it's boring. Um, uh, I have chosen to ignore them. And... Uh, and uh, <laughs> Yeah, and, you've noted it, <laughs> and and go with the opinion of those who uh, who found uh, who found something in it. Who are um, you know there are more of them, thank God. Um, I uh, with with Victoria, I just saw I have a duty to explain as as her first biographer. Then you know there may be others later to explain what happened in her life, and I had a duty also, especially when I started coming across her letters. Uh, as well as folding in my the transcripts of my interviews I did with her, um, to get her voice into her story, to try to see if I could make this, at least in part, um, Victoria's autobiography by proxy, in that she was I was using her words to tell her own story as much as possible. That was uh, the goal. But I, but she did so much. She was so, you know such a workaholic that it was it was very very difficult to to leave you know the things that she had created out and the other thing that i i felt very strongly that i was not writing the biography of a celebrity i was writing the biography of a great artist um and and she deserved the book of a great artist there was a, there was a there was a book that i regard in the back of my mind as a bit of a template which i'd read a few years before which was kate bassett's 
biography of Jonathan Miller called In Two Minds, which uh, I was mesmerised by her footnotes. Uh, yes, I remember notes, those. <laughs> uh, because she had, Kate had 10 years, uh, and it's an extraordinary book. And I thought, I want to capture the flavour of that book, again, a tribute to a great artist, although there was another side to Jonathan Miller's life as a scientist as well. Um, uh, I want to, without it feeling quite so crammed, because, you know, I had only two years to do this book. So that was that was the book I wrote. I did have to make sacrifices. And, you know, I had debates with uh, my publisher, Anna Valentine, who read the book forensically and said, I'm not sure we need this. I'm not sure we need that. And sometimes I would argue and say, well, I think we do need this. And sometimes I would just have to say, no, I concede. All right. OK, that is a detail too far. And I did more. Do, do you think some... you won more battles than lost in those conversations? Um, um, it was probably a score draw. Score draw. Uh, <laughs> but I did mourn some of the losses. I felt that, you know, there were times when, for example, when I thought, no, I'll get rid of that bit there because it's me speculating. And I thought... Um, you know, I was very sort of evidence driven uh, with my with the way in which I constructed the story. And if I couldn't find evidence for stuff, I thought I will I will dial down the kind of speculations, um, which I and I think that in one or two cases, maybe something was lost. But uh, but it would have been a bigger book if I'd indulged myself in that way. Well, e even even more than the five hundred pages, uh, mm. Francis Wilson. What what about you? I mean, you know, you you made you made choices to look at the kind of um, the themes that that were interesting yes. to you about Thomas De Quincey. Yes. How difficult was it to to leave things out? How difficult well, was it once you'd written them in particular? Yeah. For example, if you had kept bits in and, yes. and were either persuaded by editors or, or yourself rereading and re rewriting. Yes, um, it's a very interesting subject. I want to uh, pick up on something that Jasper said, and it's the difference between being a subject's first biographer and a second or third biographer. And I think as uh, Jasper as kind of Victoria Wood's first biographer, yes, he has a duty to um, to put down everything, the boring bits, to get the whole story down, lest it is forgotten, you know, to put down the historical record and to interview people he, who knew her. And that's a very important document. I tend not to do first biographies because I'd be terrible at that. What I like doing is relying on the fact that someone's done all this groundwork and then I can ignore 80% of it and choose the themes that I like and play with them, do something kind of imaginative with that material um, because I'm not, a, I'm not a historical thinker and I'm not good at detail, but I do like telling stories. And so I would say almost... 80% of a life goes on the cutting room floor when I do a biography. I always, I think of writing a biography as pretty much the same, same skill set as writing a novel. You know, it's what you leave out rather than what you put in that makes for good writing. You need, I find I need to read out, I need to leave out the boring bits because they bore me. And if I'm bored in my writing, I feel as if I'm doing a, a massive Wikipedia entry and I just fade and I just kind of zone out. So I need to keep myself kind of I, I need to see, keep myself awake. And I want uh, I want very much to turn the chaos 
of a life into a shape, something that can be made sense of. And so to find a thread that I can follow, like with Thomas de Quincey, it was this twin obsession he had with murder and with William Wordsworth. I love working on writers' obsessions. And so I just have discarded everything he wrote, apart from what he wrote about murder and what he wrote about um, Wordsworth. And the two things seem to kind of tie up to one another. So in the end, it was about wanting to murder William Wordsworth, which I think is something, you know, we can all kind of, we can all understand. Um, so the things I would, the things I wish other biographers left out, the things I wish they put on the cutting room floor, are the kind, the things that have given them an enormous pleasure as researchers to discover, like going through the archives, trawling through the archives and discovering the name of the next door neighbour's cat. Thinking, God, that's such an exciting discovery. Got to put that in the book. It's not exciting for the reader. So what's exciting for the researcher is not exciting for the reader. And I think that in so many of the biographies I read, I can feel the joy the biographer has had in um, playing with this material, but it does not translate. That pleasure that's, does not that's translate. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, Jasper, eighty percent of 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 what is discovered should be discarded. Uh, you discovered something in writing this biography, which is going to lead to another book. Tell us about that, and tell us why that wasn't included in the biography. Well, I mean, the things that I found um, when I had access to Victoria's archive, which was boxes and boxes of stuff that she kept because she was she was in the best possible sense a hoarder. She kept everything that she wrote, apart from, a, you know, one or two things that weren't there that she'd obviously chucked because she hated them. And it included lots of things that never got made. Uh, you know, her most famous TV show, Victoria Wood, as seen on TV, she overwrote for that. The sketches uh, that didn't make it in are terrific. Uh, and there are lots of other sketches in subsequent TV shows that she also didn't put in, plus stuff that she wrote uh, when she was before she was famous, you know, which has merit from a biographical point of view, uh, and you know is uh, you know uh, will arouse the curiosity of of people who are interested in her. So um, um, her her literary executor um, gave me permission to approach a publisher, my, my same publisher, Trapeze, uh, part of Orion Books, um, to bring out another to bring out an edition of her collected unseen work, which we're going to call Victoria Wood Unseen on TV. Interesting. Francis, what about you? Were, were there things that you wanted to keep in that that you were persuaded not to? I was just remembering when Jasper was talking about, uh, in my first biography, which is a life of a, a Regency courtesan called Harriet Wilson, I was really interested in where she where she was born and raised, which was at Shepherd Market in London, a little, um, little, it was then a working class area in the middle of Mayfair. And I discovered when I was sort of looking at, you know, addresses of, when I was looking at everyone who lived there, that there was an incredibly interesting social mix. This was in the kind of late 18th century, that she lived kind of cheek by jowl with, um, with new money and other prostitutes and lords and ladies. And I got overexcited and I decided I was going to write about um, the inhabitants of every single person who lived in Shepherd Market and Mayfair to show just how, you know, how did this woman get to know all these aristocratic men so that she could be their courtesan? And I thought I was, you know, I, I would... Um, 
detailed sort of how long it took her to get from her house to their house or whatever. And I was drawing a kind of, in the end, I was drawing a sort of, it was a, it was a, um, a bit of social history of late 18th century England. And I was very, very excited by it. There were so many neighbours' cats. And my editor said to me, I'm just losing the will to live. Please, can you just remind us of what this book's about and who the central character is? And I felt, my God, but it is so important, you know, where where she lived and who she knew and who she saw every day and her place in the pecking order and her sense of kind of the the huge confidence with which she kind of launched herself as a teenage courtesan. I thought it was vital to get in every single detail of her of her neighbourhood, but he said no. We just want a rattling story. And I, yes, I regret it, but it would have been a different book. Francis, with, with, a, with a subject like, like De Quincey, you know, long, long gone and D.H. And Lawrence too. I mean, are there things that you, you are changing your mind about or have had your mind changed? I always start a biography with a completely open mind. My sense of a subject as being a good subject is someone I could have a conversation with over a long period of time. And I, I don't think it's I don't think the biographer should be judge and jury about their subject. They are exploring them. And I, I think it's quite important for me, at least, not to be in love with the subject to begin with. I know there are biographers who say, you know, that love, someone like Richard Holmes, kind of master biographer, love for him is so important. He needs to love and revere his subject. And I, that, that just doesn't matter for me. I think if I, if I like someone, I can't see them. If I love someone, I certainly can't see them. If, I'm, if I've got a distance from someone, I can really see their faults. And I like homing in on people's faults. Now, I'm also... I'm interested in what uh, Jasper says about the two, you know, the two Victoria Woods. Of course he needs to explore the artist, the woman who was um, who was ferocious about the quality of the work. And why should that be a kind of condemnation of her character that she told people, you know, that they had to work harder and pull their socks up? You know, of course it was a persona, the cuddly person on stage. And that's what, I mean, what Jasper's obviously done really well is right about the difference between the um the 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 artist who worked and the woman who suffered and i think that's what biographers of artists need to do get these recognize that there is self one and self two and what's the relationship between them and it's not it's, we we can admire our subjects and i think we should admire our subjects but i think it's a i think it's a bad thing to adulate them but it's also a bad thing to hate them I'm, re- I'm reading a biography at the moment of Patricia Highsmith by, by Richard Bradford. He hates her. He starts off by saying she's a horrible person, horrible person. She was, um, she was racist and, um, and she was anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic and she collected disgusting snails. And he hates her all the way through. I think, oh, you made your point, but, you know, you might hate her. You know, I would be, as a reader, I want to explore why she was racist and why she was anti-Semitic and why she collected snails. I don't want to necessarily just be, you know, battened to death by your judgment. Yeah, or to just her. join his team of, of, yes. of hating her. It, it is found, interesting. Now, we can't... Sorry, go ahead, Jasper. Did you want to say something? I, d- I found when writing about Florence Foster Jenkins that I didn't really like her, but I... 
and I slightly hinted at that in my introduction to it, which was uh, which was read by uh, the producer of um, of the film, and they. Uh, I mean, this is the way these things work. They said, can we slightly dial that down a bit? Uh, and I thought, oh, God, uh, all right. Um, I didn't really have much choice, but, um, you, you know. But um, I, and I thought Florence was a bit of a monster, frankly. But um, but uh, they that wasn't the message that they wanted to send to Meryl Streep. I think they needed Meryl Streep's permission. <laughs> To, uh, to, to have her image on the cover. That's interesting without, in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it's a very yeah. particular kind of circumstance that you were yeah. asked to write that biography. Yeah. So perhaps you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you would have fought your corner a bit more if it was um, for, for yes, a, a different kind of biography. Yeah. Um, we, I can't let you go, either of you, without talking about the biography that's really in the news at the moment, uh, Blake Bailey's um, biography of Philip Roth, uh, which, of course... W.W. W. Norton in the United States um, have permanently putting out of print, this is what they say, their editions of, of the biography. I, I, wonder, I wonder what you make of, make of that decision and, and also just the, just the discussion around um, what has emerged about this writer. Francis. Well, I think it's very germane to what we've just been saying, really. I mean, I think that Gordon um, Norton could not have managed this worse, not least because New York City is supposed to have been on the red alert since the uh, the Me Too movement began. So how did they allow this to happen? I mean, what the, the circumstances are, it was con- inconvenient for them to act in the first instance when Valentina Rice, who um, who is accusing... Blake Bailey of sort of uh, of raping her five years ago. When she wrote to them, to, when she wrote to the company anonymously with the allegation, they just ignored it and forwarded her email on to Blake Bailey himself, rather than taking on a kind of the moral obligation to um, to respond seriously to her. And so, you know, the fact that they have now made this kind of grand gesture of, of withdrawing all the books and pulping them and donating the equivalent of his the equivalent of his advance to whatever charity it is just seems to be like absolutely hollow kind of virtue signaling and i also wonder i mean this is obviously a story about biography and it interests me very much as a biographer that we are watching the story of biography unfold i mean the, what we're talking about here is a writer like Philip Roth who clearly handpicked his own biographer because he handpicked a man, according to Blake Bailey himself, who had the same views about women as he did. I mean, this is, a, this is very much a story of biography and a story of what happens when the biographer handpicks his, when the subject handpicks his own biographer. And so in this case, Philip Roth handpicked Blake Bailey so that he could have his legacy sewn up, if you like. He found a man who was broadly sympathetic to his own, to his own um, sexual ideology. And what I wonder is, what was the editor at Norton doing by allowing, um, allowing this situation to arise? And surely she saw what the manuscript looked like, which was, you know, um, a biographer having absolutely nothing interesting to say about his subjects misogyny and rumours circulating about that biographer themselves. And so I think this kind of go this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. 
the problem of a biographer being too in sympathy with their subject, being too adulatory of their subject. I think in this case, yes, Roth needed to have a female biographer. And um, because the, the biographer, the book now has been cancelled, not just the biographer, but the book has been cancelled. And I don't see why readers can't be allowed to go to a bookshop and read his book and make up our own opinion about Philip Roth and Blake Bailey. I don't see why the book itself has to be punished. But but it is interesting, isn't it? That I mean, Jasper, I, I'd really be interested to hear your views on this. But but just before I, I, I leave you, Francis, on this issue, I mean, it does it does feel as though that it was it was a book that everybody lauded. I mean, it was reviewed extensively and ecstatically. Yes. Exactly, and and that in and of itself is really interesting. You know, to a large extent, that is to do with the reputation of Roth and people continually being compelled by him. But you know, Blake Bailey has a, a a reputation as well. But but I do think it's interesting that nobody picked up on any of this at all in the reviewing. Well, one um, one American reviewer called Laura Marsh did. And she was um, she was singular in her voice. In the review she wrote for the New Republic, she said, "This um, this is pretty dodgy stuff." I mean, he describes women according to you know, he describes the size of their bums and whether they were attractive or not to Philip Roth, and so this is a pretty dodgy book. And um, so she she picked up on the um, the strange kind of um, the allegiance, the, the seedy allegiance between the biographer and his subject. But no, no one spoke about the rumours that were circulating about. Blake Bailey himself, but I think we do have to separate, you know, the the behaviour, the unspeakable behaviour of the biographer from the reputation of a book. Now, I think the um, the book has, you know, it was it was heralded as a great book even before it appeared, and surely we should be allowed to uh, to read that book and make our own judgment. Jasper, what do you make of the controversy surrounding Blake Bailey? Um, well, I, I broadly speaking agree with Francis. Um, I'm troubled by the idea of a book being uh, pulped in any circumstances. To see to see the book disappeared is troubling. To yeah, me. I actually yeah. went to the extent of uh, I walked down to my nearest Waterstones and, and bought it. Uh, the the uh, the British edition, because I thought I do want to have this book before you know a similar fate potentially um, uh, is visited on it uh, in this country. I don't know whether that will happen or not. I um, think the book but, has become a collector's item yeah. now. Um, and I'm curious to read it. And I think that the words uh, that are contained in that book stand separate from the person who wrote it. And yes. yes. And I absolutely, much more widely than just this book, that a book is not just there uh, as... Uh, as a sort of testament, um, it, the, the the biographer's view of of the subject is is uh, is is not the only thing that you can take from the biography. Yeah. You know, I have my view of Victoria. Um, uh, you know, Frances will have her view of D. H. Lawrence, but um, but the reader is 
is the third person. I do like the idea of uh, of ending on this note of the third person in this relationship between the the, the biographer and the subject, uh, the the reader, the the all important reader. So so let's um let's end on that note. The importance of that third person in that relationship. Thank you both so much. And um, that's all we've got time for. Thank you for joining us, Jasper and Francis. And Thank thanks you. again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support for this podcast. Now, as usual, you can follow the prize on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest news and sign up to our newsletter through the website for updates straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in non-fiction writing and it offers the best in intelligent reflection on the world. The eagerly awaited 2021 longlist will be announced in September, followed by the shortlist in October, and the winner of the prize will be announced in November. We will, of course, be following the judges, authors and announcements here, so do make sure to tune back in for that. And ahead of that, I'll be joined by some other very special guests to bring you the latest and most interesting conversations from the world of literary non-fiction. Bye-bye for now. See you next time. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.